This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. Our aspirations for a promising future invariably involve the integration of technology tools. But what role will these tools play? We've seen all the conversation about generative AI, chat GPT, etc., and the uncharted ramifications of merging humans with technology looms large. So this week, I'm joined by renowned futurist and technologist Gerd Leonard, who's going to join me for a fascinating interview into these topics. We explore the possibility of technology growing so omnipotent that it perceives humanity as insignificant ants. We also discuss the urgent need for global standards and regulations to safeguard against that outcome. Please tune in as Gerd leads us in a thought-provoking and imperative discussion about the future of humanity and technology on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Gerd, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. You've been pretty busy. You've been to India recently. You've uh, been to South Africa. You're getting ready to go on a trip uh, out into the Atlantic Ocean, I believe. You're, uh, you're moving around. The future must be pretty good. Well, it's, uh, it always entails quite a bit of traveling. I'm happy about that because the COVID years were tough on that part of it. You know, doing it all online was quite a, cha quite a change. Yeah. And, and where, for our audience, where are you based out of? Well, I live in Zurich, Switzerland. Um, I have a uh, studio and a house in Lanzarote, Canary Islands. Okay. But yeah, I'm kind of a global traveler. I lived in the U.S. for 17 years in, in San Francisco, Boston. I used to be a musician, internet entrepreneur. So I've been around. Why, why'd, you, why'd you go back to, or why'd you, are you originally from Switzerland? Uh, I'm from Germany originally, but I, I moved to America when I was maybe 22 or 23. Mm. And I kind of feel like Switzerland is a great place that's sort of in between uh, the kind of how things work in Germany. <laughs> and uh, Switzerland is just, uh, it's a beautiful place. It's a small place. It's very organized, yeah. very clean, very beautiful. It's a bit stifling sometimes, but otherwise it's really a great country. I've never been, but I see the pictures, and uh, of course, one of my favorite tennis players of all time, Roger Federer, um, one of the greatest of all time, some would argue the greatest of all time, um, certainly Probably. in the modern. <laughs> Probably he is. He's, greatest, he's, yeah. <laughs> he's certainly, uh, you know, the epic matches of him and Nadal, and even him and uh, Djokovic, I mean, it just, uh, I didn't think anybody could top the tennis of the 80s and early 90s, and they've just completely rewrote honorable competition at the highest level it's uh it's amazing but we're not here yeah. to talk he, about he, ten. he's yeah. a national hero you know <laughs> he should be he should be a global hero um but let me ask you this so first of all what in your mind what is a futurist and how do you go from a mu musician in the states to a futurist living in switzerland yes well you know i I'm kind of in the, in the tradition of Alvin Toffler, Arthur C. Clarke, Buckminster Fuller, you know, the great futurists of, you know, 50 years ago. Sure. And uh, back then it was not so difficult to kind of predict the future because it was so far away. You'd have to have imagination like Arthur C. Clarke predicted the internet, predicted the mobile phone. And, and my job isn't about prediction because I'm much closer to the future today. All of us are. Right. Uh, my job is really about observation. 
So what I do is I look at what's happening around us. I kind of extrapolate and go into the next 10 years of what I see happening and you know what is likely to be the next thing and then I work my way backwards you know we always call it jokingly coming back from the future sure. so like in, when I was in the music business in the 90s it was quite clear that you know music is going to move to the cloud because it is possible it's doable it wasn't quite ready in the 90s but it did happen yeah. and so my first book actually made me a futurist my first book was the future of music mm -hmm. in 2004 it was about the music business and out of that book, we basically got Spotify, the idea of music like water. Right. <laughs> you know, that was in my book. And so I realized very early, I had a hunch for understanding and developing intuition about what's not already here. And I was able to share that with clients and governments and, and you know, to kind of awaken the sense of, re of reinventing ourselves. And uh, the way I got there as a, as a musician, you know, I went to Berkeley College of Music. I had a great career as a musician. I made a bunch of records. I had a good time. Mm -hmm. But one day, a guy came up to me and he said, hey, did, did you hear about the internet? The biggest thing, period. That was 1995. Right. And I, I said, well, you know, uh, I, the internet, no, I don't even have a computer. Right. <laughs> I, was, I was a musician. You know, and then he said, you know, we have to get on the internet. It's the biggest thing ever, and the music business will be completely reinvented. And he gave me some money, and we, we jumped into a startup together that was kind of doing what Spotify is doing today, you know, putting music on the internet. Uh, in those days was the Internet Underground Music Archive, all of those things, you know, right. and Liquid Audio, mp3.com. Oh, so yeah. I, got, I got involved very quickly with the first generation of the internet. But of course, what happened in 2001, everything crashed. My company went bankrupt, like everybody else mm -hmm. on Townsend Street in San Francisco. And from there, I wrote the book, The Future of Music. And then people started calling and say, hey, you're a futurist. Can you help us with, you know, whatever yeah. topic? Right? I could tell people of similar generation to me when I talk about um, early days of uh, MP3s and my my MP3 player was a Winamp and we used to spend so much time kind of customizing the vibe and when we could get it to show up on our television our old CRT television to play in music like it was just a for techno nerds like me it was just you know it was like magic uh, when people would come over they just couldn't believe what they were seeing and hearing. Was it well, trip? you know, I, I I realized very early in the music business that I was completely. Uh, kind of understanding the possibility of technology and music and what could come out of it. I was able to explain it. I was able to attract venture capital. I wasn't able to change the music business, which is completely dysfunctional. You know, bands right. bands don't talk to agencies. Agencies don't talk to the copyright guys. The labels hate each other. You know, all that kind of thing. And right. I realized very lately in the game that I just couldn't get the music guys to come along and took them another 10 years after I stopped working there to actually embrace the internet. I was very pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> so I moved to other turfs. Yeah, you know? that, I, wise. You mentioned Arthur C. Clarke before and uh, you know some of the other great futurists. And in my mind, I, I, get, I don't know that I would call them futurists, maybe in a way they were, but the Isaac Asimovs, the, you know, so many of the guys in the 50s and 60s, the science mm -hmm. fiction writers that were really... Um, uh, casting a vision of even even the early days of Star Trek, you know, just this this idea of these things that could do this, um, but they were looking at fifty plus years, like that seemed to be the magic number for them. Like in, in fifty years, these things would happen. 
it, you just mentioned 10 years. I, do you think that's enough time? And the reason why I ask that is part of my career, a lot of my career was IT. I was an IT person at university, University of Texas. And we used to make a plan. We'd have like a kind of a 10-year plan, a five-year roadmap, and then a um, or we'd refresh our hardware after about three or four years. So we'd have this sort of this grand plan. Now, between the cloud and everything else, that doesn't exist. That time frame has been compressed into a much shorter time. The goals are broader and kind of vaguer so that we can be agile. And the specific implementations many times, which is compl- it's hard to do because things change so much, it, as a futurist, is 10 years enough time? It feels like things are just happening so quickly around us. Is that enough runway to kind of give yourself room to pivot as things change? Well, I think the simple answer is that it used to be a 50-year uh, horizon until we see radical change. Right. And now it's a 10-year horizon until we see radical change. I always say jokingly, the next 10 years will bring more change than the previous 100 years. Oh, sure. And that is, you know, if, if, if you put it all together, you know, it's completely obvious. So we have quantum computing, we have nuclear fusion, we've got artificial intelligence, uh, we've got all the things that basically were complete science fiction before, they're already here. So if I think 10 years, I'm going to think a world without, basically with unlimited amount of energy, a world that's completely connected, a world of space travel coming, starting really seriously then, and uh, 10 billion people connected. Uh, So hopefully that means we can solve all of our practical problems like water, food, energy. Right. right? I think it probably does. Right. Uh, but as Buckminster Fuller famously said, the humanity is inventing all the right things and ends up using it for the wrong reason. Yeah, and that will be, true. I think, our main challenge. Yeah, that, oh golly, you know, from his lips <laughs> to God's ears, that's so true. <laughs> we, I see it happening all the time in uh, not just my world of technology, it's my personal world. But we'll, we'll dive into that part later. I am curious, so you've spent this time in the States, you obviously as a musician, uh, in fact, ironically, I was just standing in front of um, uh, Berkeley uh, School of Music uh, last week, just happened to be in, um, <laughs> in New York City. But I'm curious, you know, a, I'm sure a great amount of U.S. culture um, and it's varied from coast to coast and north to south. And there's sort of a, a lot of my European friends are surprised to see that um, a lot of the caricatures that they hear in the media aren't true, although some are for sure, but that there can be big changes from L.A. to New York to the south. And they, they can migrate. These can shift um, somewhat. Um, and then when you go to Europe, they're for sure different. I have very dear friends from England. Their culture is much different than uh, my friends from Germany um, who've been here for 30 years. But you can tell they're very different um, philosophical people. As a futurist, are there, is that your experience that cultures, I don't know if it's as big as a nation, if that's too big, um, especially when I think of something like the States or India would have all these subcultures in them. But do we... Do we think of the the future or embracing the future or pursuing the future or innovation in the same way? Or is there a big difference around 
the world in your experience? Well, of course, I mean, um, I think I will paraphrase Peter Drucker said something very similar once. I always say culture eats technology for breakfast. Oh. Um, basically, it's, it's uh, I think it's a strategy eats technology or vice versa. Right. Um, in any case, I think it's really important to realize that, of course, America is a country of the future. Right. And in so many ways, because it was founded from nothing, so to speak, in the sense of boot, rebooting, right? yeah. and 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 the DNA of America is all about that. You know, you you're fine to go crazy and invent and borrow money and just go bananas, and right. always looking for new pioneering things. We don't have that culture in Europe. Uh, Germany is more about perfection, which gets in the way because the new stuff isn't perfect. Right? Switzerland yeah. is about you know avoiding risk. Right. And you don't get anywhere when you're avoiding risk. Yeah. Uh, so it's the Anglo countries uh, led by America. So that's uh, Canada to some degree, but mostly UK, Australia, New Zealand, and, and of course the US, and then followed maybe by Brazil now, yeah. um, where this kind of idea of reinventing is completely normal and the future is is where we all want to be, right? Yeah. <laughs> and here in Europe is many times where we want to go back to the past. You know, to, to always say it used to be much better. And so I'm I'm stuck between those two things, my German background of being perfect and my Swiss background of avoiding all risk. Um, but the American idea of making the future, seizing the future, seizing the opportunity, risking everything, you know, that's very deep inside of me as well. And I think that is the, of course, the ultimate thing you need to do when you're designing your future. You can't sit back and say, you know, I believe this won't work and that won't work. And yes, but as people say, right? Yeah. That that won't work here. Right? This is, I mean, it's not surprising that most of the serious technological innovation has come from the States. And everybody here in Switzerland that is a great engineer or scientist, they end up moving to Silicon Valley or to China now, right? Because we don't have this kind of high-flying thinking here. That's always very, on the flip side, very Darwinistic. Hmm. So in the US, you can believe that you can make it and you push very hard, but many people fall by the wayside. Most. Uh, yeah. And Yeah, most, of course. Yeah. And here in Switzerland, we, we have much more of a middle path, so things are stable. And people are very, very comfortable and therefore not really hungry for you know, the next big thing. Yeah, it's, it's, there's so many things springing in my mind. One is um, this idea, one of the cool things about America, and there are, you know, for sure we have flaws. I wish we had this, um, if I've heard one thing a million times, once I've heard it a million times, especially from my European friends, just heard it again yesterday from a friend of mine who's a nurse who's from the UK. She said, I love to live in America now, but when it's time for me to retire for a variety of reasons, I wanna go back home and my friends from manchester sort of one of the things they have great opportunity here they have great jobs here they absolutely i think that they're even u.s citizens now they love being here but their sentiment's kind of the same thing and w one of the reasons why they think that is it blows our mind that you can be a contributing member of society work 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 and some circumstance happens where you lose your job or something happens and your home is at risk. Like you could lose your house. You could lose where we came from. That's not going to happen. Um, mm -hmm. But the the juxtaposition to that is, yeah. But you probably wouldn't have had. And I'm not justifying that at all. I'm just saying the while the the ceiling isn't as low here, but the safety net's not as high for sure in most cases. And so we 
it's there's always this tension wrestling through those things. It feels like it's immoral and gross to be the wealthiest, really interesting country. I think one of the most interesting, but there's certainly wealth by uh, GDP, and and be able to have these cracks that people fall through in a catastrophic way. That doesn't feel. Uh, it all good. depends on what you like. What you like better, you know. For if, sure. you feel, if you want to feel comfortable and not. I mean, people aren't that hungry for the future here in Switzerland. Right. Uh, they're hungry for the future in Eastern Europe because they don't have much of a good present in many, yeah. many cases. And they're always hungry in America for the next thing because that's the DNA of America. Yeah. You know, it's like the same is happening in China. So in America, the prime motivating factor may be ultimately success and, and money and, and all right. that. In China, it's the state you know, kind of allows you to do it or not. But it's kind of the same story, and so yeah. so pushing for the future is very much like uh, that's in the DNA in many countries, like uh, also in Finland maybe in the UK, where still most of the great music from the world came from the US and the UK, right? right. Not from Germany, <laughs> and it's not just a question of language. Uh, right. So so many of these things are, and that's why I always say, you know, I'm fine with being a futurist in the American tradition. I'm proud of it. Right. Um, I, but I'm also very proud European in the sense of the humanistic part. You know, I'm a humanist. I, right. I think that everything we do should have positive uh, benefit for humanity, collective humanity, if possible. Right. Uh, and we shouldn't always just strive for this kind of perpetual growth and you know this kind of uh, American way of saying uh, capitalism is it. Right? I think right. capitalism is probably it as a model, but ultimately. There are a few other things that also matter, yeah. uh, and, and that's the balance we have in Europe. You know? One of the things that I think is remarkable, given all of these things we've talked about, is then you see a company like Mercedes-Benz. Mercedes-Benz, to me, I don't own a Mercedes-Benz. This isn't a plug for them, uh, although they're, I think their U.S. headquarters are here in Atlanta, um, where I'm based out of. There are a few, I was never attracted to them, and then uh, to that car, I loved Audis and Porsches and other vehicles, but then I got to drive a buddy of mine had the, one of the really big, nice Mercedes sedans. And when I got in and drove it, I was like, this car is almost perfect. The power, <laughs> the fit, the, like in every way, before that, probably I would have thought of a Lexus. Like I was like, this is an engineering marvel. And the deeper you dove into it, it's like discovering DNA and then the code in DNA, like the, the more you get into the engineering of this vehicle, but I would not, as recently as, I don't know, a decade and a half ago, I've thought of Mercedes as innovative in the way that a Tesla would be innovative or innovative in you know some of the ways that even the, maybe the Japanese had caught up to them. Um, and if you look at them in the last decade and a half, decade, in the middle of sort of our conversation about America being way more um, chasing future and innovative in some areas, not all areas, but some areas, and then you got risk adverse um, parts of Europe and then a company like Mercedes comes along and says, you know what? We're going to rethink a whole bunch of things. We're going to innovate in a way. We're going to get back to our, um, I don't think they ever lost their engineering excellence, but we're going to bring this thing, this hundred year of excellence with how do we want it? How do we imagine the future so we can be relevant again? And they're on everybody's mind. They're a conversation that everybody's um, having in, um, in terms of uh, innovation and thinking modern and futurist. I don't know if you agree with that, but that's a remarkable brand um, experience in my mind. 
Yeah, I think one of the key uh, challenges there, uh, also difference between the US and Europe, is that um, these companies are very engineering driven. Uh, and uh, American and also Chinese companies now, they're digitally driven, you know, technology right. driven. And th these are intangible products, you know, so the Tesla isn't a car, uh, it's, a, it's a software package. Right. Uh, and, and it's a philosophy yeah. and it's digital. And, and our entire economy, and this is hard for people to understand, our economy is moving away from tangibles to intangibles. Right. Uh, and that's ideas, concept, markets, platforms, digital services, online, virtual, metaverse, what have you. Right? I mean, look at ChatGPT. I mean, the next big internet thing is being invented right now. Right. And that idea of this is not a new product. It is a digital platform of complete innovation. And that has many not so good right. side effects. But this is what's happening. And I think for Europe, the hard thing is for us to understand that life is going digital. And we're still very much in the physical realm. For example, Mercedes-Benz uh, had you know, 50 years of diesel engine engineering with thousands of people, and they're all gone now. One mm. day they wake up and say, well, end of the diesel engine, bye. <laughs> and, and, and this is really a huge challenge. This is going to happen with banking when we go to digital. It's going to happen with pharma when we go digital. Uh, it's going to happen with healthcare and all those things. And these are things that are sort of the national progression. The key question is how far do we want to go in the digitization of life? Yeah. Well, we're going to come to that when we talk about open AI and generative AI. Um, I got a bunch of questions for you. I, I love how you think on those topics. Um, cause I like how you lead us through a conversation and then us, let us chew on it. Um, instead of just dictating, this is how it should be. I mean, you certainly share your opinion before we get there. When I talk about future, or I talk to people about future, many times they think innovation and future are the, they're, they're, you know, synonyms. They're the same word. Do you think that they're the same words, the same idea, or are they just closely related? How would you, would you distinguish between the two of them? Yeah, very much so. I think the first thing uh, about the future, of course, is observation, the, the power of observation, being able mm. to watch and say, ah, I get it. This is how it really works, you know, to right. understand. Observation is not about data, reading research reports and focus groups. It's about truly understanding how things are working and how they could work. Right? Right. And that's where imagination comes in. Einstein, right? imagination is more important than knowledge. Right. So if you don't have imagination, you can't take the observation and do something with it because you're stuck with the just the analysis, the logic part. And this is what machines can do easily, logic, understanding, and simple knowledge. Right. But they don't ever understand real life because real life is not just information. Yeah. Uh, and so when we look at the future, we have to observe, we have to understand, we have to feel our way forward, and then we develop a hunch. And from that hunch, we built companies or products like Jeff Bezos did the Amazon Kindle, which nobody knew what it was. Right. And Steve Jobs did the iPhone, which nobody wanted. Right. Um, and nobody knew what it was. And Nokia didn't want the touchscreen. And so all of these things are basically about intuition and hunches. When you're running a company today, you have to have what I call the future mindset, which is to have one leg in the future you know, to, to be there to understand what's happening. And when the right time comes, you unlock that and here's a new product. 
Right. And this is what great future-oriented companies do, like Microsoft and like others, you know, who are on that agenda of reinventing the future. Um, that's kind of what we need. And it's, uh, I think Benioff, Mark Benioff once said, uh, our job is to get to the future ahead of our customers and be ready to greet them when they arrive. Yeah. Um, you know, Salesforce, uh, Benioff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think th this is totally true. And that's kind of my job. That's what I do for companies. That's what I do for governments is to get to the future, prepare and be ready when it's a go. Now, do you, do you, when it's so, I love where you go in this, but here's been my experience. And this is every sci-fi movie, book, whatever. If you show up with a future idea that's near future, they'll say, Gerd, you're a genius. You're amazing. That's because you're able to connect the dots for them. If you're too far out, you're a heretic. You're a madman. We have to burn you at the stake. We have to run you out of the village. How do you have that balance of, um, I, I want to lead you along this path. I'm far enough along where you're, he's a genius, he's brilliant, these are great ideas, but too far, you're a heretic, you're too, you know, um, we can't, you can't be trusted. How do, you, how do you work through that balance? You know, I think that the fact that I, that I lived in the U.S. for 17 years is very <laughs> helpful here uh, in terms of being far out. It's just, it's just normal what people do there. Yeah. But um, otherwise, you don't get anywhere. But I, I think the, uh, the thing is that the whole thing is a bit like a therapist. Um, I always say I kind of do future therapy. So okay. I don't know if you've ever been to therapy, but when you go to therapy, many times, the therapist does, does, yeah, therapist does not say, you know, your wife is, is useless, you know, let's, let's get divorced now. The therapist right. finds a key to something. Mm. Uh, he unlocks that in you, not in himself right. and your partner or whatever you're doing right. there. But you, you eventually find a door and then he, he shows the door and then you can go through it. And I think... I do the same for clients when I say, okay, look, here's a door that I can clearly see and you can take a look because mm -hmm. this may very well be the way out of this jam. Mm -hmm. And that's my feeling about this. And for example, I have some things I feel very strongly about, for example, the end of oil, you know, where I'm not going to debate if that's happening or not. I just know it is. Mm -hmm. uh, just like I, I said to the digital company, the music companies and the record labels in the 90s, you know, music is going to the cloud. There's nothing mm -hmm. you can do about this. Right. You have to embrace it. Right. And so when you get this kind of really what I call the hard future, the definitive future, then it can help people to take a look and say, wow, that's, you know, I should entertain this. Mm -hmm. And that's a bit like therapy. So you go home from this, uh, from the therapy session and you, and it, it doesn't leave you. You're stuck with this key. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and that's the best thing that can happen in my work when people are saying, okay, I realize, you know, this is what kind of stuck in my mind about what's possible. Yeah. Well, in 1975, if you had said end of oil, you'd have been thrown out of the building. But in 2023, you send an end of oil, pretty much everybody, even probably, you know, 2010, people say, yeah, I could see that. I, I, I could see a, I could see that, how that happening and what the alternatives would be and how we have to adjust, right? How we can capture these other energies and how we adjust. But it, it's, to me, it's, um, it feels like there's an art there where you may absolutely have the right ideas, but if they're too far ahead for people to 
embrace the possibility without only seeing negative for themselves, uh, at a minimum, you lose traction. They don't want to, you know, um, it's kind of like uh, in the States, we now have this thing called um, wake surfing. So they have these boats that take on ballast of water and they go out on the lake. So it's like you combine surfing from the ocean on a lake and they sink down into the lake so and they go slow, they don't go fast, but they create giant waves behind them. And instead of being towed by a rope, um, like wakeboards used to be, you get on a little mini surfboard and you can surf on this thing. But if the boat gets too far ahead of you, you lose the wake. You don't, you're not able to, so this is balance. It's really interesting. Skinny people love to do it. People my size just laugh at them and enjoy the buffet on the side of the lake. Same here. Yeah, so I'm like, keep, keep doing that. That was 40 years ago for me when I was at Airborne Infantry, not anymore. But, um, but it's this really interesting thing, and I see that all the time, especially with new people, either new boat operators or new participants. You get, you get too far, the boat gets too far, or you get too aggressive as a surfer, you know, you, you lose that connection. You got to, I need to be far enough, I need to be deep enough in my thought that I'm creating the wake to generate the energy for people to follow me, but not so fast um, or so rough that they can't maintain a connection. And I've got to imagine that in your world, that's a balancing act, depending upon the culture community you're talking to that um, is as important as knowing the things they talk about. Yeah, you know, sometimes it completely fails and you disconnect with what the reality is. Right. Let's say if I go to France or Italy, you know, where, well, where life is different in, 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 in general. But you know, the, the thing is that what I need to, to gauge is, you know, whether I can question assumptions. And sometimes I call this the uh, sort of future shock, you know, Alvin Toffler's book from what was it the 60s or 70s yeah, so the yeah. future shock called future shock and so i give people a future shock first that's my my opening line say so, you know if you imagine all these things happening imagine what we can do in 10 years when it's exponentially so right. much further than now right. uh, and that's the future shock and then i try to construct this kind of possibilities and at the end there is a way of saying you know what the key to this whole thing is the future is better than we think yeah. The future isn't just something that falls down on you that's made in Silicon Valley or you know, Washington DC for that matter, right. or in China. You know, the future right. is something that we create, we're, we're architects right. in our own future, no matter where you are. And you can take charge of this in a way that maybe you haven't thought of. And you can question your assumptions about what's possible. For example, the other day I had a session with a bunch of airlines about the future of flying. Mm. And I said, have you, have you guys thought about investing in A, the railroad, which is huge mm -hmm. in Europe. And the railroad is the number one thing people are investing in because of climate change. Right? It's right. one hundredth of CO2. Right. And second, virtual travel. Hmm. I mean, it's completely obvious. Yeah, I, I'm going to go into a fancy hologram room using this thing called the uh, uh, holoportation device, right. which is everywhere now. Right. And then I will show up in Shanghai on the stage, and there's no CO2 being burned in the process. And and they were like, "No, it doesn't involve airplanes. We're not interested." Okay, then you know maybe Future Shock hasn't arrived quite yet for them. Right. So. I. Again, I think that's where they think you're a madman, not a genius, right? It's a little too far. You can't capture their imagination. But I'll bet you somebody in that audience heard or saw a connection. Maybe not the majority of them. Was that a conversation in the States or was it in a 
different country. You don't have to tell me it where. Was here, it was here in Europe, but I think really what happened is that it's quite clear here in Europe already that, yeah. for example, in France, the president outlawed the short distance flights between Paris and Nice or Lyon. Mm. You have to take the train now. Right. And, and this is it's obvious that trains and planes go together and right. no matter what you do about sustainable airline fuel and all these kind of things, it's very hard to make an, air, an airplane sustainable for the time being. Right. Uh, so we're going to start looking for all kinds of other ways of trying everything basically right. because the climate crunch is the number one crunch we're, we're all going to feel no matter what business you're in and it also generates huge opportunity for example virtual travel uh, for meetings is already a big deal and right. just wait until we can do holoportation that's like you know star trek yeah. but holoportation is much more i can do it right here right now from my room i can show up in a box in Shanghai, and it looks like I'm actually there. It's not, you know, CNN flittering right. hologram thing. That's actually quite real. Yeah. Well, it, I, I, I love the idea. Um, the reality of it is, um, I'd be curious. I've got friends right now down in Punta Cana, and they're sending me pictures as they're experiencing the beach and the water and whatever. And I'm still in cold, sometimes rainy <laughs> Atlanta, Georgia. You're getting ready to go out to an island here soon. And, you know, I, I don't know that the experiences will be the exact same as being there, but it is certainly part of our future, no doubt about it. And and back to any transportation agent um, industry, I would imagine that some of them have to start thinking about, look, we're about this experience. We're about, we're not just about the particular mode of transportation. It's about this experience. And so how do we if the technology doesn't exist to do, exist to do the um, the virtual experience yet, how do we on this journey um, get involved in the whole supply chain part of it so that we can stay um, relevant? The, the more that you're invested in any particular tech, that tech is going to change, and you, you know people are going to shift. I I don't know that you're going to last um, for the long term. Well, you know, humans being humans, I think we always want to travel just like we want to eat. Right. Now, we could we could inject substances and, and be nervous and not eat, I suppose, right. Right. just like we can never travel again because it's too much CO2. But, right. but the human nature is, you know, it's all about experience, relationships, uh, getting together, emotions. It's all right. about the soft stuff. In sure. that's not going to change until we become more like machines, so we can connect directly to the internet, which I don't think is a good idea. But, but, uh, however, in the meantime, I think technology will help us to be much more responsible and accountable for all of these things. Like we don't have to fly around Europe for one-day meetings just to get a sales contract sure. signed. You know, these things. These things are changing now, and you know this is a natural progression. Just like I don't believe that we have to go into a degrowth society. You know, degrowth is not human because humans have kids. You know, we right. we change things, we do all these things. Right. So we have to we have to grow sustainably and differently than before. Right. Without taking away what makes us human, which would be ridiculous, you know, if we're if we're just going for degrowth, we're not going to see much support for that. I don't think so. We yeah. have to. We have to grow differently and be more responsible, and we can. We have all the means for it. Right. When you think about these topics, it's a great segue into um, what do you think it means to be human? You've talked about the social connection, which I think is super huge, and maybe we some, some parts of our world had lost, uh, I don't know if they lost sight of that, but we didn't realize the full importance until we were isolated for a year to two years, depending upon the group and the 
unbelievable consequences. I had um, uh, young adult daughters in my home at the time, and it was pretty impactful for all of us, adults and uh, kids still in uh, high school and college here. So when you think about, as you frame the ideas of the future that you talk about, how do you think about what it is to be a human and what's the difference between being a a human and a machine, and is there a, feels like we're trying to be, you know, some would argue with our device, we're a cyborg already. So when you think about those things, how would you define them? Well, I think it's, it's really quite simple. Humans are the opposite of machines. And um, it may eventually turn out in 50 years that many components of us are kind of like a machine. Right. But they're connected completely differently. For example, a human sees the world in a 360-degree surrounding. So there's my smell, my eyes, my ears. And, you know, everybody knows that uh, people don't think with the brain. Right. The brain is just one piece of what we are. Right. And this is why it's so hard for a machine to understand humans, because machines don't have the all-sensing environment. You know, like you judge a person, an average person takes uh, 0.3 seconds to gauge the other person they meet without saying a single word. Right. And how do we do that? Well, this is because we see the world in its complete way. Right. And if you have the most advanced camera, for example, today, it can capture between 3 to 5% of reality that I capture when I stand there mm. with all of my senses. And so as a human, we have many things that are still quite unclear. For example, happiness. Right. Uh, of course, emotional intelligence, which uh, that to explain that would take the whole 90 right. minutes here. Uh, <laughs> social, kinesthetic, musical intelligence. I mean, these are all things that machines know nothing about. The only thing that machines do is binary information loading. Uh, and that is unlimited. So the way I look at it, uh, machines and technology like, like this, you know, these are tools that right. we use. And if I have a better tool, I'll beat you who doesn't have the tool. Right. Uh, but the tool itself is useless because right. it, it, it is not uh, conscious. It's not, it doesn't have agency. It's, and I certainly wouldn't want that even if it was possible. Right. So Stuart Russell who wrote the books on AI at UC Berkeley. He has a great book called Human Compatible. Um, and basically he says that we should be concerned with whether our machines are competent, not if they're conscious. Because consciousness is us. Right. And I think humans are conscious because of the fact that we are inefficient, we change our mind, we lie, we play games, right. uh, you know, we do all that sort of total inefficiency that a machine would never do, because inherently that is impossible for a machine to not be, you know, zero or one. It's always zero or one. And as you know from our daily lives, we are very often constantly going back and forth between zeros and ones, between yes, no, maybe, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> uh, and, you know, these, kind of, these are things that humans do very easily. So the bottom line really is we're going to do what humans can do best and the machines will do what they do best. Yeah. And now we can hope that we can find a good synergy, a balance that will be beneficial and controllable, which is the number one topic really yeah. here. And that doesn't make us lazy or distorts our reality like social media has. And so the way I look at it, you know, technology is 98% benefit. 
um, if we're not careful, that 2% that is not a benefit uh, can mushroom very quickly to be a big pain, uh, just like the oil economy. You know, it was a great benefit to drive a car, but now the, the world is dominated by climate change problems. Right. Um, so if we are smart, we can use that technology and then we can look at the externalities, the dangers, and we can dial those down and control them. Right. And then it should come to a happy ending there, right. you know, not, not like climate change. Uh, so that's really the challenge right now that we are sometimes leaping too far by saying that all technology is good no matter what it does, you know, whether right. it's connecting our brain to the internet or uploading our brain and all these kind of strange ideas that people have about humanity. Or it's all good in every age. In other words, oil or fossil fuel at one time <laughs> before it was a, um, uh, the argument goes before before the um, the totality of it impacting carbon and climate change and all these other things, there was a time it got us out of caves, it got steam and, you know, all of these things began to happen and it changed the face of the world in many cases, I would argue, for the good. But it, I think to your point, or at least the way I'm understanding your point is, great, let's let's run with that, but let's not make it a sacred cow like we worship at the knee or the altar of any particular technology. It gets us to a place and if it starts to do more harm than good, we you know we want the result of the thing, but we shouldn't be married to the thing. Let's adjust it. One of the things that I have see, experienced, um, and I don't know how to think about it yet, but I I'm kind of kicking this idea around. Within the last year, an, um, a lot as a result of hosting this podcast, we've had a number of people come on and talk, mostly technologists, some futurists. But the consequences of technology, the unintended consequences in most cases of technology on human beings, on society and our well-being. And one of those is um, the impact it's making in young people. Well, young people, I'm defining it 30 years and younger in their dating lives, in their um, sexual lives and population and all these other things. And that they're, they're pursuing satisfaction, they're pursuing relationship in a digital way and not in a in-person way. And so without spending too much, I'm not an expert in there, I'm just reading and learning and listening to these conversations, but I could see the temptation. I've been married 36 years, a little bit more than 36 years. My wife is half Japanese and half Irish. Um, and we grew up, she grew up in the southeast of the U.S., I grew up in California primarily. We don't have a lot in common, even after 36 years and three kids and happily married. We have some things. We have deep affection and love for each other. That's my official stance. I will, um, if my wife is listening to this podcast, <laughs> but in all seriousness, we do. But the, I could see the temptation for people. What if I could get a machine, almost like a Stepford wife or a Stepford spouse or whatever, a partner that doesn't... Um, I, I get the I get myself gratified, whatever that is, and I don't have any of the complexity of having to learn to develop emotional intelligence and the pushback and the things that come from a long-term relationship and how you have to figure out how to be human beings together and create an environment. And there's plenty of outliers where that goes spectacularly wrong, not just in your relationship, but with children or community or whatever. And so there's a temptation to, to leverage some of these tools not to help me learn how to be a better human, but to replace the messy human in my life because I want somebody um, uh, that's just meeting my needs. And that, you know, 
it's kind of far out there, but you can see a roadmap. Did you ever see this show? Um, I think it was called Westworld or something like that. Sure, sure. Westworld, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I remember this yeah. scene where one of the women was raped. She was an android. And there was a big question in the community like, was well, that really rape? It's an android and it's a human being. Is that, does an android or this machine? And it was, without drawing a conclusion, it was this huge intellectual discussion. And so I, I just, you know, it's sort of like a black mirror kind of thing. Here's the consequences of unchecked, unrestrained um, behavior or abusive technology is kind of this idea. And, and uh, as an optimist and as a technologist, I love the 98%, but it's that 2% um, that if we're not careful, it seems like it can, it, can, it can sow a path of destruction. Well, I mean, I, I was talking about the 98% in general, but I think, for example, in social media, we're, we're already at the 50-50. Mm. You know, we're, we're that 50% good and 50% really bad, right. like manipulation, election distortion, fake news, uh, you know, lying, cheating, all that stuff. And it's now, of course, with AI, it's going to get worse. So right. I always say that if we're not careful, chat GPT and, and generative <clears throat> AI could be like social media, but 100x is bad. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I use it for my work. I'm getting faster. My research is getting better. I can rewrite my book. You know, it's, it's really powerful stuff. So if you are an airline or, or uh, another travel company, you need to rebook 50,000 people because of a, of a snowstorm. The AI can do that. Right. You know, there, there's no human feelings required in most cases. You know, this yeah. is really not some bold stuff. So the way I look at it, uh, too much of a good thing can be a very bad thing. And that is really true for food, for alcohol, for cigarettes, for everything. Right. That's why we shouldn't for, we shouldn't say, you know, everything's forbidden. That would be stupid because, right. you know, it would only get worse there. Right. So we allow people to drink and we allow people to smoke if they want to kill right. themselves. So fine. But if we do too much of a good thing, just like food, you know, more people are dying from obesity than from hunger. I believe it. And what are we doing about that? You know, this is one of those things where we say, yes, you know, we are, we have campaigns and all these things. Right. The same with technology. If we are going to take it too far, we're going to end up very unhappy or just very dead. Right. And and really what's happening, for example, you see the great example in Blade Runner 2049, right? Where the guy is in love with the hologram, the woman, and right. she can change into anything. She's perfect. And then he gets her offline into this thing that he hangs on the wall and stuff like that. And then the power goes out and she's gone. And he is the most unhappy man in the world. And he's the loneliest guy because it was all not real. Right. right. So that's what I mean with this description of too much of a good thing. So I really believe that in the end, we're always going to take shortcuts. We like to be lazy. Uh, we have relationships that are remote and digital in all kinds of ways. Right. But real is still going to be real for the foreseeable future yeah. in the sense of that's really what we long for. Yeah. You know, this is uh, this is where, they, where it, it hits all the marks and the buttons. It's like dating. You know, if you do, ever do any online dating, you can have the perfect profile and match the perfect person. You go to the date, it's two seconds. It's like, no, total right. no-go. Right? It's, it's just because... The data that you really want isn't in the profile. Right. And so I think this is so important that we realize, for example, that some technology may lead us into temptation of laziness and, you know, plain, uh, basically reductionism, right? Right. So I'm not going to marry a, a person, I'm going to marry a robot. Right. Because uh, that's reductionist. 
And I think if that's what you want to do, be my guest, but we shouldn't make that the new normal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and I think we need to have social contracts and just like, for example, you can drink a bottle of wine with your friends in the evening, but you you wouldn't show up at work in the morning and bring a bottle of whiskey. Not and people twice. wouldn't think that's normal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they wouldn't think that's normal, even though it's possible. Right. Right. So I think we're gonna have the same thing here with robots and with AI. Basically, the tool should not become a purpose. Yeah. And in many ways, you've seen the technology has become a religion. Yeah. Uh, people people believe in technology. And I think if we're going to believe in anything, it would be us or the world around us or other people. Yeah, it wouldn't be like, you know, a carpenter doesn't fall in love with a hammer. Right. You know, the hammer is just a tool. Right. So, you know, and, and he may lose the hammer, get another one. Right. Uh, you know, so, so I think this is really important as we're going into a future where everything will be technology. We need some new social contracts. Well, we don't talk about religion on the show, but it's almost biblical what you said, which is, look, all things um, in a certain measure are for human good. These are good things. When you take them to, um, and it's not necessarily the same for everybody, but there is a point for everybody where if you take um, any of these graces or these good things and take it to an extreme, they become detrimental or a sin or consequential or whatever word you want to um, use. And it's usually existential. Existent, right. Yeah. And it usually they're, they're, mm. it's self-evident. The, 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 the tar and the smoke erodes your lungs. The not pushing away from the table as my doctor is now requiring me to do and I'm on a path to healthiness. Um, and there's a physical uh, evidence, mental health, all of these other things. I'm not talking about genetic breakdown that you have no control over, just these behaviors because things get easy. Um, they're cheap, they're easy, they're simple, and we you know, tend to follow the path of least resistance and we do those things. I, I, I think this is one of our challenges of the sort of uh, digital age. Uh, as we're moving into the next uh, 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 generation where basically everything is possible, pretty right. much everything. You want to live to be 120, you can work that out in the, right. in the very near future. Right. Uh, you want to hook up your brain to the internet and, and you know put on the neural link from Elon Musk, that's going to be possible. Right. Uh, you want to go into an icebox and break up a thousand years later, that will be possible right. and is already cryonics, right? right? That's already here. So the, the question really is so much not so much about what we can do, but what we want to do. Right. And and what is the collective benefit of doing this? There'll, there'll be always some people who do weird things, you know, right. transhumanism and all these things. But right. but um, you know we have to have a general agenda on what is sort of in the green orange era right. of our lives, you know, and what is definitely in the red zone, uh, you know, like genetic engineering uh, as has already been tried in in uh, uh, in China, right. you know, to uh, to change uh, the makeup of our babies and so on and so on. So there's lots and lots of ethical questions that we have to answer together at least on the bottom line level of saying this is what we think keeps us human and this is where we currently have the big debate about AI yeah. because artificial intelligence is now at the point to where 
if we leave it unchecked, it could surpass our ability to control it. Right. And and so I'm not so worried about this tool causing laziness, which it does, right. or you know, bypass the exam in school and things yeah. like that. That's also an issue. I'm worried about the tool becoming so powerful that we don't know how it works anymore, and then it grows into something that is out of control and would basically look at us like we look at ants. You know, when you right. go to the outside and you walk in the forest, you kill thousands of ants, you wouldn't even know. Uh, and, and you don't care because you don't see them. And it could be a little bit like this if we're not careful with AI. Uh, for example, in climate change, you know, if you ask an AI about climate change, the AI would say, well, let's kill all humans first, and that kind of solves the problem there. Right. Yeah, and not an answer that we would want. And so, <laughs> so this is something, this is why I support the moratorium on AI. You know, a global understanding of rules as to how we control this technology before it becomes something that causes like nuclear catastrophe kind of things. And we've had lots of debate about this in the last couple of months, you know, with ChatGPT. So when you, um, I love the ethical question or discussion. I had Dr. Uh, Dr. Paul Root-Wolpe, who is head of ethic at um, Emory University here in Atlanta. He's former director of ethics at NASA. And um, he's also a biotech um, expert. And we didn't we spent some time on biotechnology, but it was more on this idea of ethic. And he said, you look, we've got um, one of the things he talked about was with artificial intelligence. He he's not against technology at all. He's a full embracer of technology. He he just um, and for him, ethics isn't as simple as what we teach grade school children about don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. It is if you're going to empower a autonomous vehicle to, um, it's going to come into contact with human beings, and we're going to have to give it agency to to make decisions when things go wrong. And if a human being, if if I were to come into a situation beyond my control, and I have to make a split second decision: do I crash into the bus stop with three children? Do I crash into the school bus with the fifty children? Fine. You know. People are more forgiving of a human being. Look, given the speed at which things happen, um, beyond your control, this was a, is a tragic thing. We'll get through this as a community. Whereas, if a mas- machine, whatever decision it makes, is going to be highly scrutinized, and how did it get it wrong? Why didn't it say this way? Or he even likened it to a battlefield. On the one hand, that technology, it knows no fear. It's not going to be afraid when a woman with a baby comes around the corner. It's not going to accidentally shoot it, it's going to wait to see, like there's all these benefits, but we also have to give it agency to take a human life. And do we really want to give a machine agency without human oversight to take a life? And so these are the things that we need to be sophisticated about and think about. And he, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but my understanding would be we should be way more cautious than we are. We should be way more guarded. This is a, these are way more complicated things and we don't we're going to give up the things that make us humans to things that aren't humans. He said, for example, the easiest way to get rid of cancer, remove the carbon-based life forms. You just remove cancer. Next job, you know, what What else should we do? <laughs> and so it is, um, I'm not naive. I know our, not just in the States, but globally, how we are going to race towards innovation. And if I'm in poverty somewhere around the world and uh, um, I need to... Uh, in order to get myself and my family out of poverty, um, to have a life that I can only imagine, uh, I'm not going to 
employ the safeguards. We, we see that even with uh, energy. I'm, if I have to consume wood energy because that's all that's around me, even though it's a spectacular creator of carbon and whatever, I'll do it if I don't have access to other energy because I'm going to get my family out of poverty. And I'm curious as you, it sounds like a lot of your futurist conversations is philosophical. When you talk to audiences around the world, what's their response? Do they embrace this idea of, um, I don't know if regulation is the word I want to use, but this, um, this embracing of a policy that says, look, let's have a moratorium. Let's have, I was just asked this question the other day about Musk and others saying, look, we should, we should really consider slowing this down. I just don't know. And I'm not trying to be a pessimist. And I know you hear this all the time. I don't know how we do that globally. So are, are audiences buying into this idea of the moratorium? Um, and is that a majority of your conversation about getting them to see not just the specific text, but, but how we don't lose our humanity in the process of it? Yeah, but this is not really new. I mean, we do this uh, with the marijuana laws. We do with alcohol laws. We we find a way to trim down the negatives. You know? yeah. And now we're going we're gonna to do with oil and gas and coal. We're going to dial back on this and get in something else. So it, this is not unusual. And I think humans are perfectly capable of doing this. The main thing right now is that this is clearly the next $100 trillion opportunity in For business. Sure. So I always say, you know, much, I mean, the climate change and climate technology is another 100 trillion right there. But to turn humans into tech or to turn tech into humans is the next big thing. Yeah. Uh, and th this is true for genetic engineering, it's true for AI, it's true for computing, it's virtuality, metaverse, all of those things. So I'm not saying no to that. I'm just saying that at, at a certain point, we have to ask a question as to how legitimate it is to do all those things just because of one argument of economic growth. Yeah. Because we may end up in a world that is basically growing a lot economically and productivity-wise, but inside it's crumbling and falling apart and having no uh, collaborative effort and basically polarizing and sooner or later leading to disaster. Yeah. So, uh, and that is really the question. So I say it's the choice between profit and growth um, and what I call people, planet, purpose, and prosperity, mm. uh, which is a more balanced growth, right? So I, we grow and we grow with people, we keep the planet intact, we have purpose, which is really about the spiritual part, and then we have prosperity. Mm. And all these things are top of the agenda. And I think basically what is happening, and we can see this already, I see it all the time in my audience, where they already are thinking that they don't want to work for a company that's just about profit. Uh, for example, many people between 25 and 40, they refuse to work for oil companies, for banks or legal companies that work with oil companies right. because they want to get to a larger future. Right. And, and this is a one-way street. So basically what's happening with AI, if we continue this road of saying we're going to make great products and we don't have any side effects we just ignore, then it'll be roughly around 2035, 2040 where we have an implosion of all the side effects and then it's a total reset. And I think that is really what's happening now. Mm. And that's why we have these debates along with the climate change debate. Right. Uh, so there's two very large challenges and opportunities is to shift to renewable energy. And the other one is to use technology wisely, right? This is I yeah. focus on the word wisely, which yeah. is, you know, collective benefit collective control, and it's always been about collective for humans. For example, in nuclear agreements, it's a collective thing. Sure. 
And, and AI will be a lot easier to generate than nuclear bombs. Sure. You know, so, so our need to come together and, and say, okay, what does it mean here? You know, if we can program a human yeah. using AI or genetic CRISPR-Cas9 and so on. These things are all big topics now. And this is where we need to come together and say, what is the objective? Is the objective just to rule, you know, power and money? That's kind of traditional objective, you know, mm -hmm. US, Russia, China have similar objectives there. Um, or do we have a common prosperity, a global consciousness, as some people would say? Yeah. You know, is that the objective? Or is it just going to be a race to the top and then game over? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, I can see that, people. I worry about that. I yeah. see children in the West, or adult, like I, I am. I appeal to this idea of conscious capitalism or ethical capitalism, which is um, many people have made this, I think, a very compelling argument about how at the end of the 70s and into the early 80s, this idea, um, which I'm not, a, uh, I, 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 would, I believe I'm becoming more and more intellectually firmly against that the purpose of a corporation is profit. If that's true, we see this unnatural behavior that happens if that is the prevailing purpose as accepted by, at least in the West, of all businesses. It's, it's just about profit to shareholders. We There's evidence after evidence after evidence of how this is a disaster in every way for human flourishing, for the environment around us. And I think it's um, indefensible in my personal opinion. Um not capitalism per se, but this idea of, um, you know, as Gordon Gecko said, you know, greed is good, um, <laughs> but conscious capitalism. So if a, you know, companies, I think have to be profitable, but that shouldn't be their purpose in the same way that your purpose isn't eating, uh, or sleeping or drinking or breathing. You have to have those things to be alive, but hopefully your purpose is something much more existential than that to help your family and your community around you. I'm just not as optimistic, and the one area I'm not optimistic that powers around the world, um, that everybody in those areas would have that same sort of uh, philosophical mindset that um, like they 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 want a powerful seat at the table. We're not launching aircraft carriers around the world for sea trials anymore. We're launching these technologies. So that we can, you know, so they can be the app store for the world. We don't want America to be the app store for the world or Western Europe anymore. And I feel like there's real tension there. So in the West, in my community, for sure, everything that you just espoused, it is a very real part of our culture. Like that is, that's a, one of the reasons why we've, I believe our organization has been successful in a very challenging um, industry and business to be in. We adopt that philosophy. We couldn't attract talent if we didn't adopt that philosophy. But it's not the same in other places that we want to operate or other people that we talk to. They have a um, – that's not as important to them. And so I feel like there's real work to be done there if we're going to try to persuade governments and agencies – to have the uh, this collective mindset you're describing because they have to give up power. And by definition, they don't want to give up power. 
Well, uh, first, I think there is a lot of power in this new mindset as well. You, you can be a major player, but you can't like be the controlling only player. Right. And even and even China is realizing that. Yeah. You know, I don't know about Russia. That's a whole different story. But China wants to be a global player. Wants to wants to be super important, but owning the world is out of the question. Right. And that's out of the question for everybody. And I think everybody knows that. And 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 also what's happening right now because of COVID because of the Ukraine-Russia war, the old words that we used to use, you know, socialism, communism, capitalism, fascism, they are useless now because the only question remains, how do we have a future that works? That is, how do we create a, a, a economics that are future fit, mm. ready for the future? And the agenda is surprisingly similar, no matter whether you're in Indonesia or Brazil or America or Europe. Uh, on the basic level of this agenda, everybody wants to have what I call the good future. Yeah. You know, children, growth, jobs, self-realization, you know, rights, right. those kind of basic things. Nobody wants to die and not have to eat or, be, or, or, you know. So the agenda is very similar there. And I think what I see right now is that technology is giving us the key to that kingdom by saying we can solve water, we can solve food, we can solve disease, we can solve cancer, we can solve energy, but we're going to have to agree on the global approach to this, how we work together. And AI is the instance right now where we have to come together and say uh, there is going to be a framework that ensures that it's safe and secure and possible to control. Uh, because if it goes out of control, it's not an issue for America or China. It's an right. issue for every single for person. Sure. <laughs> you know. And, and the other thing I want to say is that it may very well be, this has been human experience in the past, is that we first have a major incident before we grasp the reality of the issue. Yeah. So we had Nagasaki Hiroshima, and uh, it that was the trigger point for saying we don't want another fifty thousand bombs. You know right. that would not work. Uh, so we had the COVID crisis, yeah. and now we're realizing we better be prepared for the next one pandemic and so on. And yeah. so this is how we work. So it may very well be that one day we have a huge disaster using technology AI that basically, say, corrupts the global airplane right. traffic. Right. Lots of people die. Uh, and then we decide that we, we weren't careful enough. That may very well be. I hope not. I hope right. we can get to that discussion beforehand. Yeah, he might. I think you're right. I, I would love to see um, the adoption. I heard somebody say something to me that was really, not to me, but I heard it in a conversation that really, first I rejected it, and the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, that's kind of right. When I was a kid in the 60s, there was a lot of fear about nuclear proliferation, nuclear uh, weapon proliferation, and the mm -hmm. use of them. And it was on like you would see the testing mushroom clouds and you would see, we knew, my wife, of course, being uh, half Japanese, her mom's from Fukuoka, like we have in our heritage and our understanding conversations that have happened. All of my family, uh, grandparents were World War II veterans. My father was pre-Vietnam era, but um, uh, veteran, I'm a veteran. And so it was like we could visually see and 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 had a had a uh, an emotional response to the consequences of these things, and and because um, we haven't seen a lot of the testing, we kind of hear about it. I hear this person was making this argument that um, you know there's almost a flippancy, like well, if they launch, we'll launch, and we'll because we're not the the utter. There is no winner. The utter consequence of these things happening is ex 
you know, pot, not ex, maybe extinction, but like a catastrophe we can't imagine in every way, an immediate catastrophe, catastrophe a long-term catastrophe. And I feel like the same way could be with some of these tools that um, we, we run around with the power of God sometimes kind of flippantly and not, um, uh, not with the joy but also trepidation that we should in handling these things like you, I have been experimenting with ChatGPT, and I love it. It has made some routines in my work now so much more fun, easier. Curi- it's, I, I think it's amazing. I also think the errors are spectacularly funny, kind of like autocorrect sometimes. I'm like, that is not what I said. It's so funny. It's so wrong. <laughs> Where'd you get that word? I've never said, I've never mentioned genitalia in any text before. Why did you think that was okay to put in there when I meant purpose? I didn't mean that word. <laughs> So it's pretty funny. Well, you know, there there's two things here that we have to keep in mind. First, yeah. you know, we all we all we always tend to uh, anthropomorphize technology. So we think it does it like a human, or it right. looks like a human, right? But then, you know, this is just faking to be a human. That's what it does. That's its mission, right? It's yeah. a really super parrot. It works great. It's a great autocomplete. It's like Google Maps, much better. But yeah. you know, it looks like that. But it's still not human. But we tend to. Uh, describe it this right um, and the other thing the second really important thing we have to give humans more credit for what we're capable of we're not just capable of of, of Hitler and Putin and what have you right. we're not just capable for those things we are generally capable of actually doing good things right and for the majority of times we actually do right. uh, achieve good things we often bark up the wrong tree and make colossal mistakes and stuff but we have been flourishing for the last 100,000 years because right. we are capable of doing that and reacting. And I think this is what's happening right now. We shouldn't make the mistake of saying that's inevitable because, you know, we are greedy and so on. I think that's a completely flawed argument. And, and read the book by Rutger Bregman called uh, uh, Humankind. Um, great book to read about, you know, having faith in humanity. And this is why I always say, you know, the, the future is better than we think. It's not that we are the problem and that we're useless. It's just that we've we've gotten a little bit lazy and we've gotten way late into dead end streets and we're chasing after the wrong thing. But in principle, we can figure it out. You said something that I, I should have thought of. I wish I had said it that I loved. Speaking is not the same as thinking. When you're talking about Chat GPT, what did you mean right. by that? Well, you know, it's this is a large language model, so it deals with language. A regurgitation, you could say. You know, it goes out and picks up, you know, a trillion different words, and, and it just recombines them in a, in a useful way. Right. And that is not what humans do. You don't go back to your head and you pull out these little JPEGs and, and you put together. You don't do that. You know? We we are completely uh, holistic in the way that we form reality and the way that we see reality because it's hearing, thinking, speaking, talking, feeling. You know all of those things together. And in Indian philosophy, for example, there's like 50 or different ways of intelligence. And this machine doesn't have any of those. It has only this reality of putting together really interesting sounding snippets. Right. And it, it cannot gauge if it's right or wrong. It doesn't gauge if it's, uh, you know, it can only follow the rules that you write into, into its code. And, and therefore, I think it's a super powerful tool. And we shouldn't uh, superimpose too many human-like characters on this. Uh, just the word intelligence is a very human word. These machines don't have intelligence. You know, they are they're smart. Yeah. Uh, they are they're logic monsters. 
know? and, and therefore, you know, if you have a practical job to do, like I said earlier, for example, call center. You know, there's about, what, 40 million people working in call centers. 90% of those will be replaced by these machines. Yeah. Because when you do routine work, the machine gets it, machine learns it, machine improves. Once the machine can actually hear what you're saying and speak to you in, a good, in good language skills, which is coming, uh, they're going to do that. And then we have to figure out where do those people go? How can we upgrade them to a different job? Do we need an automation tax? Whatever that story is. That moment isn't here. As you know, you cannot speak to a computer and it cannot speak back to you as if it was a person quite yet. Right. You know, that just isn't happening. Just like self-driving cars aren't here. There are some exemptions and examples, but right. by and large, no, they're not here. And Tesla had to recall all the, the software packages. And, you know, so we should not mistake a clear view with a short distance, as my colleague Paul Sappho says, when it's about technology. And this machine is not intelligent. It just knows how to appear very intelligent and therefore makes a really powerful tool like any other tool. Right. right. If you were um, if you were a voice at the table of what this what this um, you know we we've got the moratorium let's say in place and now we're we're working through with uh, a number of voices to help represent what the goals of this should be by this I mean technology in general but it, let's whether it's generative AI, you know, general AI, narrow AI, but artificial intelligence is involved in the discussion. How is it that you would, how is it that you would explain or what would you be your explanation and how it should benefit humanity? What should be the outcomes of these, of a tool like this where uh, it, maybe it's easier instead of the the micro of what specifically the steps are, but it should the end result should look like this. It reminds me of the argument in front of the Supreme Court when they're trying to define pornography, and basically it said, "Look, you'll know it when you see it." Right? How would you I, know it when you see it that this is benefiting humanity? I, I think there's two things we we could immediately do. One is we should denote if an AI is involved, for example, in writing and journalism and news, we should have a little meter that says 10% AI, 80% AI, the news anchor is a, is a bot, so right. that's 100%. We should denote that and make sure people know. Yeah. So that don't take it for real. Uh, the other thing is that you know we need to have a, uh, a way of controlling it, which is much more important than uh, uh, the first stage of it, which is confusing to us and, right. and could lead to political issues. Right? Right. Uh, but controlling it means uh, we should always have the human in the loop as the ultimate instance, mm. regardless of if it's going to slow things down or not. Like, you know, I can take the pilot out of the airplane. The thing could fly itself today. Okay. Uh, it's possible. Right. Nobody would want to go on a plane like this, you know, a robot tin box, basically. Right. Uh, but it is possible. The reason that we have the pilot is exactly this reason, that we want the pilot, and it's not it's just one or two, it's not right. 20 pilots, right? right. Uh, so we can afford it, and the human controls it, and we feel happy that we feel like the human is there. And that would, should be exactly the same thing in journalism, in writing, in, in creation, in making films and videos, to stay real. Uh, and I think that is ultimately the objective, is to create a society where the benefit are 99% and the rest of it we can deal with, you know, the dangers and the side effects. Just like nuclear power, in my view, 
it's not all about nuclear bombs. You know, we right. can also solve energy issues here. Right. right. And and nuclear fusion ultimately would be the key to that new universe. So we shouldn't pull out the baby with the bathwater. Right. At the same time, uh, to say, okay, now we have all problems solved, and basically productivity goes to the roof, but everybody else making less money. Right. Uh, this is what we have now in social media. You know, right. it's uh, some some companies make hundreds of millions of dollars per day in social media, but the benefit of social media goes to I don't know one city. Right. <laughs> you, know? you know, it's funny you when know, you talk the, about the, the, uh, social you know. media. It's like Congress in the United States. I heard somebody tell me this once. Their approval rating is worse than Trump or Biden or pick a president ever has been. But people love their congressmen. And what I mean by that is if I ask most people about social media in general, it, more than half will say it's terrible, it's poison, it's whatever. And if I ask them, do you use it? Well, of course I use it because I use it in this responsible way, in this healthy way or whatever. And um, I am, again, I well, embrace these technologies. I think they're, uh, you know, the, the the sporting things that I follow, the scuba diving things, the other things I follow, I follow on social media, and I, I love that use of it. Um, I've disconnected myself from it for political and other things. I just cannot take um, the chaos. Well, that it, the, the thing, the thing yeah. about that is that, you know, these companies have to be accountable, and they're, they're completely unregulated. <clears throat> and, and I mean, telecoms are regulated, banks are regulated, media companies are regulated, everybody's regulated, but not these guys. Yeah. And, and that is just not a good idea because when we're dealing with, you know, four, four billion users, for example, yeah, right. you're going to need to admit to some accountability. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and now ChatGPT will roll out to, I don't know, sooner or later, five billion internet users on the mobile phone. Right. And if you're not accountable, you don't have a framework in place, it cannot possibly end well. And so, because the temptation of making lots of money is the number one thing, you know, that, that just won't work out for society. So, and this is why we have these debates now. I'm very much counting on, counting on Satya Nadea and his team at Microsoft and Bing to make that idea a reality, yeah. is to potentially forego the gold mine, you know, to have some silver, right. you know, to, uh, to do the right thing. It, the, when you were talking about this before, um, about it in fake news and all these other things. One of the things that gets me anxious, the, one of the things that gets me anxious about the tools is the undisclosed bias. So if you have a platform and there's pseudo enforcement of one idea or the other, I don't care which political or geographical side of this or nation state spectrum you're on, if the platform's in your, if, you, if you're in control of the platform, it's very tempting, if not impossible, not to um, promote the things that you want to promote and um, hide, dismiss, cancel the things that you don't want to. It is. I don't care what the motive of your heart is. It is our nature. And in sporting events, uh, we feel um, if you see one team being officiated much more strictly than the other team. We call it fraud, unfair. There's a bunch of controversy around it. But on these platforms, um, I don't think that they've been, uh, to your point about regulation, let, like, let's set the, let's one, disclose the biases, and two, let's set the stage for um, the uniform implementation of regulation. And when it is opinion, it's not fact, it is not peer reviewed, it is these opinions, and you may agree and resonate or not, 
Um, that's the danger right now for me in the early adoption of some of these things. Oh, you know, I did. Uh, I used one of the OpenAI tools for something the other day, and it gave me a bunch of information. I was like, that's factually not true. It's hilarious that it said that, but it's not true. But if I didn't know that, if I didn't have some experience with that, I would just run with that information, and it would be incorrect. The issue there is for media, it's really totally clear that social media has become a machine yeah. because it's AI that runs social media, really. It's not people. And that's why they're making so much money because they have replaced the humans with the machine. And if we want to save media, we have to put the humans back. Yeah. And when we put the humans back, at least we know what we get. We know what the New York Times thinks about the world right. or Fox News or The Guardian or whatever. Right. And that and that's good, right? We know yeah. what what these editors are thinking, and and so that's fine. But we should not remove all of those and say the machine will do a better job because the machine doesn't know diddly squat about reality. <laughs> right? It only knows the logic behind reality, which is a total reduction of reality. And if we say that media is going to be run by a machine, then we may as well marry a robot. You know, same yeah. thing. Gerd, I cannot tell you how much it warms my heart to know that after your years in the States, the things we've exported with you is the phrase diddly squat. That just <laughs> it transcends international boundaries. It's uh, yay, America. Hey, look, I know yes. we're, we're coming up on uh, time here. Um, when you go in and you meet with whether it's um, large groups or business groups or narrow groups, I'm sure you you end the conversation, or at least I hope, with what you're for and what should they take away from that conversation, either with optimism, and maybe it's guarded optimism, like, look, these, this is how we should embrace the things that are in front of us to fulfill our purpose, to build prosperity, to take care of our planet and the environment around us, um, to, to not do all three, to save the planet at the cost of prosperity and purpose is a disaster. To have all the prosperity and purpose in a spaceship that's falling into the sun is a disaster. It doesn't work with all three legs done. How do you, how would you like to close this conversation? Uh, one, I would love to know how people could find you and listen more of you. I have found um, you're on my regular playlist now, YouTube, great use of AI, now feeds me your information. I find it very interesting. <laughs> Um, and I listen to a lot of people, but I, I really, I think you're charming and I love how, which, so thank you for coming on the show, but where, how would you leave, um, this conversation or what do you want people to take away as we wrap this up today? Yeah, there, there are several things. First, um, the future is indeed better than we think. Uh, a result of that thinking is also that the future is done by optimists. It's never decided by pessimists. Mm. Pessimists just get the future thrown onto them. So optimism is what wins the future. Uh, and as far as that, that process into the future, I am with Kevin Kelly, who says that it's not utopia or dystopia, mm. it is protopia, you know, the stepwise approach into the future. That's what makes it happen. The, the final thing I always say is that your mindset contains the future. If your mindset is negative, your mindset is worried, your mindset is uh, you're concerned with the assumptions, whatever you held, the garbage that we keep in our minds. Sometimes if we have a future mindset, we can create the future and it will be what we make it to be. And I think this is really what we have to realize, especially in Europe, that we are actually in charge. We are architects of that future uh, and we can, we can definitely be a part of making it as we like. Yeah. And the totally final rule is that I really believe that humans and humanity in itself is totally capable of creating a good future. 
uh, when we get out of our own way, when we start collaborating, when we stop, uh, when we stop looking for simple solutions and laziness, then I think we always find good ways forward. Well, Gerd, thanks for coming on the show. I think that's a good place to end it. If people want to know more about you and what you're up to, how do they do that? Well, I'm easy to find. You know, G-E-R-D is my name, uh, like gastrointestinal reflux <laughs> disease. But that that is the most popular, Gerd. But I'm Gerd, G-E-R-D, as well. And my website is futuristgerd.com. And uh, otherwise, if you just put in Gerd, G-E-R-D, and the future, yeah. you find everything you could possibly ask for. And of course, YouTube is, I'm big on YouTube. I love YouTube. It's GerdTube. That's the shortcut, G-E-R-D-Tube.com. That's how you find my YouTube channel. Perfect. Thanks for coming on the show. And uh, to our audience, if you enjoyed the conversation, please like it. If you loved it, subscribe. We'll see you next time, everybody. Have a good day.